Ephesians chapter five. If, if you've never read the second half of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter five, um, like welcome to a, a tricky passage. This is the kind of passage that would come with like handle with care sticker. Um, so before we read it together, I wanna um, make a few suggestions on how we tackle difficult um, passages like this. So I'm gonna use a tool that I've shared before at KXC. I have zero doubt that I will share it again. Um, and I'm borrowing from the world of neuro-linguistic programming um, to talk about how worldviews shape perceptions. So all around us, right Right now, there are billions of bits of data, things that you can hear from the room, things that you can hear from um, Pentonville Road that are kind of making its way through the walls and the windows. There's lights that you're aware of. There's probably smells, hopefully good, some not so, that you're aware of. You're aware of my presence on the stage. Some of you will be thinking, is he being away on holiday because he's got a great tan? Has he lost a bit of weight? Thanks so much. So you're, you're processing lots of, of data, but way too much data for you to really digest. So the, the data goes through the senses and through some filters until you're left with about 100 bits of data. So let me articulate how this works. So you start with your 3 billion bits of data. It goes through the senses, what you can taste and touch and feel and smell and hear. And then it goes through these three filters. You make generalizations, because this is happening in nanoseconds, by the way. You're processing data, you make generalizations to help make sense of the data. There's bits of data that you deem irrelevant, so you just delete bits of data, and then you distort bits of data to help come to an outcome that you really want, an outcome that is desirable. So in nanoseconds, you're basically going through this process, generalize, delete, distort, generalize, delete, distort, generalize, delete, distort, until you end up with 100 bits of data. Which is why when you're at a crime scene, the police are looking for multiple eyewitnesses. You may think that you actually were aware of all that was going on. You really, really weren't. You only got one small bit of what was going on. And as they listen to multiple voices, they get a clearer picture of what actually took place. Now, what's this got to do with Ephesians chapter 5? Some of you will be asking the question. The answer is not much, but there is a link. That when we come to the Scriptures, we have biblical reality. So the question that we're engaging with this afternoon is, is what was Paul trying to say to the church in a very specific place in Ephesus, a Roman colony, at a very specific time in the first century. And therefore, what would he want to say to us? So we're engaging in biblical reality. But as we come to the text... Let's just be really honest. We come with a pre-existing worldview that is shaped by the surrounding culture that we're immersed within, a secular, progressive culture. So when we come to the text, we go through this process as generalizations we make. There's certain bits that we don't like. Delete, don't like that, don't like that. And distort that. Let just twist it a little bit to get to the outcome that I really want. And then you end up with perceived biblical reality. In other words, your interpretation of the text and your interpretation of the text and my interpretation of the text often says more about me and my pre-existing worldview than the worldview of scripture itself so what happens is you come to the text and then you find yourself looking back at you in other words the word becomes a mirror 
The Word becomes a, a mirror and, and you start getting a picture of Jesus. And you're like, do you know what? I love Jesus. Like he gets angry at all the stuff that I get angry about. Like if he was here today, I think he would share my political preferences. And, and he's really chilled about all the things I'm super chilled about. Um, and, and you basically create a Jesus in your own image. This is how we end up in art with a white European Jesus. Basically, people do the generalized delete, distort, generalized delete, distort until they end up with a Jesus that is basically a slightly improved version of themselves. This is why Voltaire once famously said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. So when we come to a tricky passage, you're gonna be aware of, of certain triggers, certain, certain things that arise in the passage and you're gonna to want to generalize and delete and distort. Surely Paul didn't mean that. Like he was clearly just speaking into a, a first century context. He, he wouldn't mean that in our context. Generalize, delete, distort, generalize, delete, distort. Um, what would it look like for us to smash the mirror, right? To come to the text and not just for it to be a mirror, you know, with the reflection staring back at us. How do we smash the mirror? And I want to suggest there are seven words that we can speak out that will help us destroy the mirror, right? And these are the seven words, not my will be done but yours. Not my will be done but yours. These are the words of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he faces the prospect of the cross. He's sweating blood, highly anxious, basically saying, Lord, like, does it have to be this way? Lord, take this cup of suffering from me. And then three times, not my will be done but yours. And I would say that these seven words aren't just a hinge point in the ministry of Jesus. They are a hinge point in human history. Without these seven words, there is no cross. And without these seven words, there's no resurrection, there's no ascension, there's no Pentecost, no outpouring of the Spirit, no birthing of the, the church, no inbreaking of the new creation. These seven words are critical to our faith. Like new life breaks out because Jesus said, not my will be done, but yours. Um, and to follow the way of Jesus. And just as a kind of like a heads up, this is gonna feel like death, but it brings resurrection life. When you come to the text, not with your pre-existing worldview, ready to find exactly what you want to find, but you basically say, God, I just trust that your vision of human flourishing trumps any vision that I could create without you. And it trumps any vision of human flourishing that you'll find on the face of the earth. I, I just trust that your vision for human flourishing is best. So Lord, teach me, what are you trying to say through this passage? And then take a deep breath, seven words, not my will be done, but yours. And when you say it, and when you genuinely mean it, you destroy the mirror and the word becomes a window. And you begin to come to the text and you see through the text a picture of life in the kingdom of God, a picture of life in the new creation. So we're going to read Ephesians 5, tricky passage. You're going to panic in moments, deep breath, seven words, not my will be done, but yours. And hopefully the word will become a window into life in the kingdom of God. And hopefully it's a compelling vision, a beautiful, beautiful vision. Are you ready for the passage itself? Three of you are. That's, an, that's enough. I'd have taken two. Three's a Billy bonus. So verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. How beautiful is that? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 22, wives submit to your husbands. Generalize, delete, distort. You surely can't say that. Generalize, delete, distort. Generalize, delete, distort. Um, breathe. 
Not my will be done, but yours. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Generalize, delete, distort. Surely, generalize, delete, distort. Breathe. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church's body, of which he's the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we're members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Can I hear an amen? <laughs> amen. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Generalize, delete, distort. Generalize, delete, distort. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're a slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Um, <clears throat> this is a window into life in the kingdom of God. And we're going to unpack three key words to understanding this passage. Submission, um, then headship, and then unity. Let's start with this vision of submission. And before we unpack the word sub submission, I want to unpack another word that will shed some light on what Paul means by submission. So I want to talk about the word freedom. When we talk about freedom, particularly in this cultural moment, what we really mean is autonomy. And autonomy is a compound word, two words shoved together, auto, nomos, auto meaning self, nomos meaning law, um, and put them together, a law unto yourself. What does freedom look like? It means zero boundaries, do what the hell you want, that is a picture of freedom. And the biblical response is, that isn't freedom, that's actually slavery. Like, what does freedom look like? So, one way of understanding what terms mean in their biblical context is to use a hermeneutical principle. Um, this is one of the principles used by the rabbis in the early centuries. It's called the principle of first mention. If you want to know what a word means, find the first mention of that word in scripture and that first mention will illuminate meaning. So the first mention of the word freedom or free is in Genesis 2. So the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man you are, free. good reading, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. In other words, this is a biblical vision of human flourishing, and this is a biblical vision of freedom, and the vision we get of freedom isn't the absence of boundaries. 
right? It isn't autonomous, a law unto yourself. The biblical vision of freedom we get is actually living life in the presence of God, fully alive with the right boundaries in place. Do not eat from that tree. Right? That's what freedom looks like, submitting to the commands of God, trusting that he knows best and his vision of human flourishing trumps any vision we could create of human flourishing. So freedom comes through submission to God, right? Now that's going to jar if this is new to you, but that's a biblical vision of freedom. So what does this word submission mean? Um, the Greek word is hupotasso. Should we say that together? Hupotasso, oh, I sounded beautiful, well done. So hupotasso, compound word, hupo meaning underneath, tasso, the Greek verb meaning to order. In other words, order yourself beneath. This is a picture from the Garden of Eden, like God comes first, he's king, you're not, right? So trust in his commands, order yourself beneath. But, but this is true in other relationships. Paul is basically saying what mutual submission looks like, putting others first, order yourself beneath. The, the most epic and beautiful vision we have of this is Philippians chapter two, another letter from the apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And he quotes to them a hymn from that time. Um, and the hymn is well known that Christ Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be snatched hold of. Rather, he made himself nothing. So this is a, a vision of Christ putting others first ordering himself beneath, right? But the intro to the hymn, Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And he says, consider others better than yourselves. In other words, hupotasso, order yourself beneath, right? So when we get to Ephesians 5, this is how it begins. Verse 21, hupotasso, like order yourself beneath one another out of reverence for Christ. And then verse 22, I want you to see this. You'll see it on the screen. Verse 22 doesn't even have a verb. If you were to read verse 22 without 21, it would just read like this. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. What the hell does that mean, right? So it borrows the verb from verse 21 as a way of saying, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The point I'm trying to make is you cannot understand verse 22 without verse 21. They are absolutely connected, right? Hopefully you see the point. Now, what you'll see on the screen here is the 1984 translation of the NIV. <laughs> Who cares? What are you going to care in a minute, right? Because you'll see that this is a way of interpreting the passage that shaped many of us in the room. So the first chunk of, of the passage, you can read it at the top, is about not getting drunk on wine, but being filled with the Spirit. Paul says, speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have this random verse just tagged on. Submit to another one, and out, one another out of reverence for Christ. Then a paragraph break, which means tea break, coffee break, downtime. At another moment, come back to the passage. And when you eventually come back, the first thing you're going to read is wives submit to your husbands, right? Completely disconnected train of thought. That's how we read it when the, the paragraph is broken up like this. And suddenly it feels incredibly jarring, right? But we've already said in the Greek, verse 22 doesn't even have a verb. It borrows the verb from verse 21. The two have to be connected. 
and, and this is humility. Um, the group of translated that did the sort of rework, the most recent translation of the NIV, basically recognized, you know what? We butchered the text. We absolutely separated verse 21 and 22. So for a whole generation of readers, when they heard, wives submit to your husband, they heard something different to what Paul was actually saying. Because for Paul, the big idea in verse 21 is mutual submission putting one another before yourselves. And therefore, there are two sides to that coin. There's wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then the other side of the coin is what Paul says to the husbands, husband, loves, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ give himself up for the church? He laid down his life to the point of death so that we might experience resurrection life, right? Like love and submission, like with our cultural sensitivities, sound like two fundamentally different concepts. And in Paul's mind, they are exactly the same thing, right? You can see this. Let's try and define um, love and submission on biblical grounds. Submission we've looked at, hupotasso, order yourself beneath. In other words, lay your life down for the sake of others. What about love? Well, let's define love like this as the New Testament does. This is love, 1 John 4 verse 10. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 3, 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Ephesians 5 verse 1, earlier on in the chapter, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us, how did he love us? He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So when Paul says, wives submit to your husband, generalize, delete, distort, generalize, delete, distort, and then says, and husbands, I want you to love your wives. And, and this is what love looks like. It looks like hupotasso. Order yourself beneath. Because this whole passage is about mutual submission. Now, you need to know this because our context, our culture, we think we're unbelievably progressive and, and have moved beyond like, you know, the dark ages. But the reality is when, when you look at passages like this, you realize how unbelievably radical and progressive this teaching is in the context of the first century and in, in our context too. So let me just give you the ancient understanding, the context of how women were treated in society. Um, brace yourself, this is going to be tough. So in the Jewish context of the first century, rabbis taught a threefold daily prayer, still found in some 20th century Jewish prayer books. So Jewish men would pray this every day. Praise be to God that he's not created me a Gentile. Praise be to God that he's not created me a woman. Praise be to God that he's not created me a slave, right? In Jewish law, a woman was not a person, but the possession of her husband or before that father. She had no legal right. She couldn't testify in court. She was entirely the possession of her husband, as I said, and he could do whatever he liked with her, right? That's the context in the first century of Judaism. If things are bad in that context, they get even worse when it comes to Greek culture. A Greek philosopher once said this, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. So women in Greek culture lived completely secluded lives. They took no part in public life. They never appeared on the streets alone. They never even appeared at meals or social occasions. They even had their own apartments where no one was allowed to enter apart from the husband. 
And if things were bad in Jewish culture and worse in Greek culture, they were even worse in Roman culture. Now, into that context, Paul begins to preach. And he says, submit to one another. Hupotasa, out of reverence to Christ, right? And then he says, wives, submit to your husbands. And you can imagine in the, in the context of the first century, there would have been an amen. You got it, Paul. Preach it, brother. Amen. Amen. And then he says something that is going to blow their minds. And this isn't the exact language, but this is essentially logically what he's saying. And husbands, here's how you treat your wives. Hupotasso to them. Submit to them. Rank them above yourselves. In the context of the first century, that is the beginning of a revolution, right? That is the beginning of a revolution. For him to say it to the men, one thing, you know, but to say to the women, like, no, you have such dignity. And I'm telling the husbands that they need to hoop a tasso to you too. This is mutual submission. This is unbelievable. And it continues. He says to the children, hey, when it comes to your parents, I want you to submit to them. Preach it, Paul. Love it, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. Keep going, buddy. Keep going, buddy. Um, and then he says to the fathers, and to the parents, when it comes to treating your kids, this is the best word really to articulate it. Hupatasso to them. Rank yourself beneath them. Like that's the beginning of a revolution. Who else in the ancient world was treating children with such unbelievable dignity? And then he addresses slaves and masters. And he says, slaves, I want you to submit to your masters. And that would have been, yeah, absolutely. Preach it, buddy. Listen, preach it, preach it, Paul. Absolutely right. And then he begins to address the masters. Now, just as a heads up, I'm aware of cultural sensitivities. This isn't Paul justifying slavery or endorsing slavery. The seeds, intellectual seeds, theological seeds that led to the abolition of slavery are found in the writings of the Apostle Paul. It's the Apostle Paul who said in Galatians 3, one of the foundational verses of that movement, that in Christ, all the dividing walls of hostility have been broken down. In Christ, there's no longer the distinctions like Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. We are one in Christ and we stand equal at the foot of the cross, right? So this isn't Paul defending or justifying the evil of slavery, but into a context where that was the norm, he's basically saying Slaves, submit to your masters, but masters, when it comes to how you treat your slaves, I, I got one word for you, really, and it's hupotasso. Like, order them above you. Order yourself beneath them. Like, for masters to hear that in the context of the first century, that's the beginning of a revolution, and the revolution is called the kingdom of God, right? Now, as I said, we can think, oh, we've moved so far on beyond that. But like, you know, 21st century, have we? Like we live in such a me first context. Order yourself above. Put yourself first. You're a self-made man. You're an independent woman. Put yourself first. Put yourself first, right? Like we have a whole like mindset, a worldview that advocates, celebrates this. It's called expressive individualism. Like put yourself at the center of the story. And if you put yourself at the center of the story, you'll find life. Is it working? Absolutely not. Most of our therapeutic models are built on this mindset. Put yourself first, put yourself first. And it seems people are getting more anxious and experiencing more and more despair. I read this article this last week by James Mumford, who's part of our church family. Um, 
I'm, I'm experimenting with tech. Here's a QR code that if you want to read the article, you can get your phones out. No one's choosing to. Tough, tough crowd. Um, but in this article, he's basically critiquing the therapeutic models of our age. Okay? And the article's really about anger management. That moment when you're in the car and someone cuts you up and, and you want to hunt them down. Any, anyone experience that? Just me. Or that moment when you're on the tube and someone pushes past you and, and like anger just flares up in a moment and you want to hit them. Right? So he's talking about that moment and, and therapeutic models of anger management that basically talk about self-awareness. If you, if you want to grow self-aware, self-aware, put yourself first, order yourself above, all of that stuff. Um, and he's critiquing that. And he says, for me, then, anger management does not just involve, as cognitive behavioral therapy manuals have it, becoming more self-aware. No, efficacious anger management means becoming more other-aware. In the moment, right there on the tube, what I need most desperately is to think more, not just about myself, who I am, I need to think more about who he is. Like, this is a picture of what Paul's talking about. Hupertasso, order yourself beneath. A married, imagine a marriage where the husband and wife are like, no, you first, no, you first, no, put your knee, you know, Imagine that, what Paul's saying, that kind of mutual submission, like championing the other, is going to create an environment where both come alive. And imagine a friendship like that. And, and imagine a staff team environment like that. This idea of mutual submission, everyone championing one another to come alive. What a beautiful, beautiful vision. It's called life in the kingdom of God, right? Hupatasso. Here's the second term, Headship. Paul says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he's the saviour. So the, the Greek word here is kephale. Let's say it together. Kephale. Um, when we think of headship, what comes to mind? Because again, it's the kind of language that you probably feel something in your body as you, as you hear the language. What comes to mind when we talk of headship is the idea of control and authority over someone. So the head teacher is the boss they get to call the shots. The head of the army is the commander-in-chief, the one in charge, the one in control, the one who calls the shots. But headship in the first century didn't have that baggage and it didn't even have that meaning. In fact, as I've said, reading this passage in the first century would have been highly, highly offensive because it was so radically progressive. So rather than control, ruling over, the Greek word kephale, at least in Greek literature of that time, was normally used to describe the source or origin of something. So when we say the head of the river, that, that's where the river begins. It's the source of the river. So if Paul had wanted to underline that husbands had authority over their wives, there were plenty of other words that he could have used. And it's interesting that the Greek term exousia, which means like authority, like ruling over, control over, is completely absent from the text. The, the term exousia is not used in the text at all. Um, instead, he provides Jesus as the model of headship. Jesus is the head of the church, his body. And how does Jesus demonstrate headship? The answer is by serving. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. For Jesus, headship is about serving. It's about washing people's feet, not exerting power over people. So the likely interpretation of headship is that Paul is saying that woman came from man, that's, in other words, man is the source. That's a reference to Genesis 2, the story of Eve. Um, 
emerging from you know, Adam's side, a rib being taken out of Adam's side. So woman came from man, but man also comes from woman. In other words, in childbirth. I'll let you do the, the maths on that. Which means you have interdependency, which seems to support the logic of mutual submission which is exactly what Paul says in another challenging passage, 1 Corinthians 11. He says this, lean in. He says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, right? Nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Can you see this vision of interdependency, not self-made man, independent woman, throw your hands up at her. Not that. You've got this vision of interdependency that speaks of mutual submission, ranking the other first. One final note that supports this interpretation of headship is that in the ancient world, um, the thought was that the head serves the body by giving it life, nurture, and growth. This is pre-the Enlightenment, right? Where everything becomes about our rational faculties. In the ancient world, the head was the source of nurture. And the ancients considered the heart, the cardia, where we get cardiovascular from, the cardia, the seat of the will, action, and authority. So if Paul wanted to talk about authority over, he would potentially be more likely to say that the man is the heart, the cardia of the woman, not the head. The head is the language of nurture, which is evident in verse 28 to 30. Paul says this, after all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. And the logic is that as Christ nurtures the church, so husbands, who in that context had all the power, and therefore could use that power over their wives. It says, no, 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 this is how power flows. You are to empty yourself of that power. You are to order yourself beneath. Um, and I want you to be vehicles of nurture, right? Lay down your power and nurture your wives so that they can come alive and be the people they were created by God to be. In the context of the first century, for Paul to, to speak like this, it's the beginning of a revolution. It's called the kingdom of God, Right? So when you initially read the passage, you're like, ah, generalize, delete, distort, generalize, delete, distort. Not my will be done, but yours. What are you actually trying to say? You get a vision of mutual submission, putting others first, laying your lives down to nurture those around you. This is life in the kingdom of God. Final word we're going to look at, unity. So Paul constantly goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account of how things were meant to be and therefore how things are going to be restored to be in the future. And in Genesis 1 and 2, you've got a group of like paired opposites, two things that come together. So you've got heaven and earth as paired opposites, God and humanity, husband and wife. You also have other paired opposites, day and night, sun and moon, land and sea. Genesis 1 and 2, loaded with paired opposites. Then decreation, which is created order unraveling because of sin, means there's separation, right? Heaven and earth separated. Adam and Eve are thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Therefore, God and humanity separated. Husband and wife separated. This is the moment, Genesis 3, when sin enters the story, where husbands begin to rule over their wives and there's enmity between man and woman. Notice this is a result of the fall. This is rebellion against created order. Patriarchy is not God's intention for human nature. Patriarchy was not God's idea, right? Patriarchy is our rebellion against God's vision for human flourishing. 
It begins in Genesis 3. So that's decreation. Recreation is, is the reconciliation of all things. Heaven and earth reconciled. God, humanity reconciled. Husband and wife reconciled. And, and this is a key theme in Ephesians um, throughout the book. So Ephesians 1, Paul starts talking about God revealing to us the mystery of his will, which has been made known in Christ. And, and, and this is his will to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. Right? This is how things were meant to be in the beginning. Reconciliation between heaven and earth. Fast forward to Ephesians chapter 2, because the logic just begins to build in this letter. In chapter 2, he talks about the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile being broken down. And Paul says it was his purpose to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. So God and humanity are reconciled. And more than that, as part of that, Jew and Gentile are reconciled and it keeps building to the point where you get to Ephesians 5. Now, if you're unaware of the logic, it feels like Paul's like speaking in macro terms, the reconciliation of all things. And then suddenly in chapter 5, he's randomly talking about marriage. Like, what's going on here? But for Paul, he's taking people back. Like, this is how things were meant to be. Everything's being reconciled. And the final paired opposite, heaven, earth, God, humanity, is husband and wife. Paul says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh, right? And then he goes on to say this, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. What's going on here? Paul's basically saying at the macro level, What's happening because of the cross through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus is everything is being restored to how it was meant to be. That's the big story, right? But a signpost to the macro narrative, a signpost that you can see all around you is husband and wife becoming one flesh. In other words, marriage is a sacrament. Sacrament meaning a sign. A sacred sign. The purpose of marriage is to point to and foretaste the eternal union of Christ with his people. It's a sign. Say it one more time. Marriage is a sign. And when we see marriage done well, it's a picture of what our whole story is about. But can I just underline this? Marriage is not the destination, right? It's a sign to the destination. It's not the destination. When you make it the destination, you're going to experience heartbreak, Right? Because you're going to have this mindset, marriage is going to complete me when I find the person, game on. Because I will have arrived at the destination. You won't have arrived. You won't have arrived. And you're going to tee yourself up for some serious heartbreak. Marriage is great, but it won't complete you, right? It's a signpost to the destination. And it's a signpost to what God is doing. These paired opposites are being reconciled through the cross. But just because it's important to emphasize this, in the church, at times, we have made it the destination. And we've spoken of marriage in those terms. We've put marriage on a pedestal. It isn't the destination, right? It's assigned to the destination. And if we wanted to talk about sacraments, it's worth saying that singleness is also a sacrament. Singleness is, is like a sacred sign as to what our story will be about. Because in heaven, in the new creation, I won't be married to be anymore. Like my union with Christ will be everything. My marriage will be to Christ. The marriage of the church to Christ. And therefore singleness done well, singleness is a sign pointing towards our, our 
deepest longings being satisfied in the union with Christ, which is why Paul, when Paul talks about singleness, like he, he has a really elevated view of singleness. He basically says it's better by far. Like if you're really, really randy, Paul says, this is the message translation. If, if you're unbelievably randy and you can't cope, just get married. But what's actually better by far is for you to foretaste in the now what will be your eternal destiny, which is just union with Christ, right? Singleness, and we need to honor singleness in the church. Singleness is a, is a signpost to what is to come. Singleness isn't a stop on the journey to the destination of marriage. That is nonsense, right? Singleness is a signpost to what our story is really all about. So listen to these words. This is a Cistercian monk, Edmund Waldstein, who says this. But if erotic love is an image of the divine love, then it might seem paradoxical that the monk remains celibate. Would it not be better to live an erotic life to the full? And some who died out are now dialing back in, thinking, yes, what he just said then, yes, an erotic life to the full. I'm back in. You have my attention. Would it not be better to live an erotic life to the full in order to fully signify transcendent love? There's something to that idea, which is developed by the Christian tradition and the theology of marriage as a sacrament, a holy sign. But the life of celibacy foregoes the sign precisely in order to show that it's merely a sign. The intensity and immediacy of erotic passion for embodied creatures like ourselves, it's so great that there's a danger of staying with the sign and not being led to that which is signified, right? What do the signs point towards? Eternal union with Christ. So when we come to a passage like today, if we just read it carelessly, it triggers all sorts of different things, generalized, delete, distort, generalized, delete, distort. We don't have to operate like that, right? Not my will be done, but yours. Lord, what are you trying to say through this passage? And as the word becomes a window, you begin to see like a snapshot of life in the new creation, life in the kingdom of God, where the people of God are basically, you know, practicing hupotasso. I'm going to put others first. I'm going to rank myself beneath. I'm going to love those around me. Ultimately, God comes first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, submit to God. But then we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And as we get this vision of submission and this vision of not exerting power over people, but being vehicles of, of nurture and this vision of the reconciliation of all things, we not only get a vision of our eternal hope, but very slowly and incrementally, it becomes our lived reality. We begin to taste and experience life in the kingdom of God. <laughs>